Uh, Father, we know from your scripture that the days are short and the time is coming when your glory will be known by all men and women on the world, uh, that the nations will praise you as they should, that a kingdom will be established to the ends of the earth and with a king whose righteousness is unquestioned. And Father, I thank you for that glory that is coming and that our future includes the opportunity to live and enjoy that place. This is what we all long for, Father, though for the m- most of us, our understanding of it is lacking. And Father, how th- thankful we are that the Bible gives us so much to understand about what those days will be like so that as we study these things of the future and they become more real to us, at the same time, Father, this world that is passing away will be less real and its draw on our hearts will be less and our affections for it will diminish. And as a result, Father, we will be, be more prepared to please you and to live in the world that we will one day call home. And I thank you, Father, for the scriptures today as they show this to us in a clear way. Help us to understand them and help us to live according to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so as we get into a new chapter in Matthew today, chapter 20, we're actually continuing in a topic that we started in at the end of 19 last week, and that was the topic of how the Lord is going to assign reward, eternal reward, to believers when we enter into the kingdom. At the end of chapter 19, here's what we saw. We had Peter hearing Jesus saying that wealth is not an assurance that you are going to enter the kingdom, which was something of the assumption of that day. Rich people were believed to have more favor from God. And so that seemed to indicate God was better prepared to receive them or that they had a better chance of entering heaven. And Jesus said, no, actually, it's the other way around. Wealth can get in the way of pleasing God. Now, when Peter heard that, he assumed that Jesus was repudiating wealth under any circumstances. And you remember Peter and the other apostles, they left behind all of their earthly wealth to follow Jesus. They just dropped their fishing nets and followed him. And so in verse 27, at the end of 19 last week, Peter asked Jesus, well, what will, they, what will there be for us? Which is to say, what is the reward that we will receive for the sacrifices we're making? Is there nothing? And I think Peter imagined himself empty-handed when the kingdom began. Remember, these guys did not know at that time that Jesus was going to die, even though he had told them. And so as a result, they were imagining that the kingdom was right around the corner, literally days, weeks, months. And so they're seeing themselves under their current circumstances, and they're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what I'm going to have in the kingdom? Well, that doesn't seem right. And so Jesus, in verse 28 last week, he reassures them. He says, oh no, you will receive many times as much as you have sacrificed to serve me. And so when we saw that answer last week, Jesus revealed that there are two types of rewards that will be assigned to believers in the kingdom. In verse 28, he said, first, believers will be rewarded with authority to rule over the people and the nation's in the kingdom to come. That the Lord assigns himself, Jesus, as king over all of the earth, yes, and he has a government, and in that government there are positions of authority, and those positions will be filled by believers. Now, if this is new to you, and maybe it is, well, I'm glad you're hearing it, because it's in the Bible, but more importantly, I would encourage you to go back to last week's lesson, go to some of the other teaching on this issue that you'll see in the, in, in the website, but it's important to understand that governmental rule is part of what the kingdom involves, and we're a part of that. And he even told the apostles what roles they would have. You remember? He said they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom. 
And those are very senior government positions. And as such, they hint at the criteria that God is going to use in assigning believers to positions. That is, we know the apostles served with distinction in the early years of the church, and so it makes sense to assume that that connects to what we'll do when we get to the kingdom. But we have to come back to that topic because we don't find in chapter 20 a discussion of that side of the reward system. That is, the way we're assigned roles in the government is not addressed yet. It comes in Matthew 25. So we wait to get there to address that side of the reward system. And if that's too big of a teaser, well, just hang around. I'm sure we'll get to chapter 25 in a year. (laughs) Meanwhile, in verse 29, at the end of 19, Jesus introduces the second type of reward system. And this is the one we get to talk about today because it's the one in chapter 20. Here's what we read at the end of Matthew 19, 29. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. All right, that's what we studied last week. And before we look at that again today and get into chapter 20, I need to give you a little bit of background and foundation. And to start, we need to look at Mark's version of that same statement because in Mark's version, we find some different wording and that different wording is quite interesting. Mark 10, 29 Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or farm or children or farms, uh, mother or father or children or farms, for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I'm sure you picked up on the difference there, right? Mark indicates that the material rewards that come for the believer as a function of sacrifice, those rewards come in the present age, he said, versus in the kingdom. Now, to understand that, you need to understand a little bit about what's going on in the moment. Uh, First of all, Jesus is saying that if you leave behind family members who oppose your faith, For example, if they disown you because you choose to pursue Jesus, he says that is a part of what it means to follow me, For at least for some people, right? You may be disowned by parents or your siblings may reject you. Uh, In the West today, those sacrifices are not as common. But look, in first century Israel, if you were a Jew who professed Jesus as your Messiah, you lost everything. Uh, You were disowned by your family, you were a pariah among those you knew, you were set outside the culture, and of course, many were persecuted to the point of death. But it hasn't stopped. Even today, among conservative Jewish families, if you become Christian, that's taken very seriously and usually divides you from the family. But it doesn't stop there. In non-Jewish cultures like Islam or Hinduism, there is a very similar practice that if you believe in Jesus, you're repudiating your family roots, you're you're alienating your own kind, and as a result, you're set aside. And in some places, it's quite dangerous. So Jesus' words ring very true, even to today. Not that it's an experience we all share, but it's still an experience in the church. And Jesus says, as you make those sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, he will grant you new and better family relationships now in place of what was lost. And of course, what he's referring to are the spiritual relationships that you gain in the church. That is to say, you gain new eternal family members. In fact, the family you gain in the church is better than the one you're leaving behind. 
And some of you say amen, and I understand that, but listen to me. What I mean by that is, these relationships take priority over the ones that are earthly. Because, friends, when you die, any earthly relationship you have, parents, spouse, children, you name it, they end at death. What continues on after that? The eternal relationships among those who are of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer in that way. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, what Paul means in that context, among other things, is that after we come to faith, we now give priority to the new relationships that have been established by our faith in Jesus. So we put a spiritual relationship that we have with someone above the physical, earthly relationship we had before that. So, for example, if you have a boss who also happens to be a Christian, or if you have a spouse who is a believer, or a parent who is a believer, that Christian relationship is more important than the earthly one that you have already. That is to say, if you serve your boss well, it's not because of your raise or because of getting fired or because that's what you're supposed to do. It's because he's your brother or she's your sister in the Lord. Long after they're no longer your boss, when you're in the kingdom with them, seeing them for a thousand years, and don't shudder at the thought of that, you're, you're looking at someone who will have memory and will think about how you treated them in the days prior. And by the way, that's especially convicting for spouses. You know, men, you have this privileged role in the family as God has assigned it for authority. But if you're misusing that, you know, I always say, if you have to tell someone you're the boss, you're not the boss. But if that's how you approach marriage, wait till you get to heaven and she's your sister in the Lord. You know, you need to think about that. Peter talks about that. So the point is this. You obey your boss or you serve somebody well or it's a family relationship. You treat each other well, primarily out of a concern for the eternal, not out of some earthly obligation exclusively. And so all of these things apply, that is whether it's parents or siblings or spouses, etc. spiritual relationships are the precedent now. So when Jesus says, the family relationships you might lose now as a result of your faith are to be replaced by something better, that's what he's talking about. Look around you. Do you have a family like the one you have in this room? In, terms, in earthly terms, the number of people, the, the binding in love that unites the body of Christ in a way that in earthly families, it's not always that way. You know, that's what you've gained. And Jesus says, that's part of how he repays us in the present age. And of course, it doesn't stop in the present age. All these people are gonna be with you in the kingdom. Another good reason to get along with them. So, what does he mean when he says also farms? This is where the dilemma arises because he says, if you should lose a farm as a result of coming to Jesus, then you will receive many farms hundredfold in the present age. Now we know that believers do not automatically lose a farm when they join the church, right? Much less do we automatically gain a hundred farms every time someone comes to faith. I mean, if that were true, growing a church would be a lot easier, honestly. Join the church and get your farm, right? Nobody would have a problem with that. Because that's clearly ridiculous, we know that that's not what he meant. So what did he mean when he said that if you have to make sacrifices for Jesus now, you will receive many more farms in the present age? Well, here's what he meant. In that day, a family would typically live together in a small community and work the land together, sharing in the production of that land. 
So you might have a father with some sons, and as the sons grow up, they eventually marry, and as they marry, they take their wives, and they build an addition onto the father's house. And as such, a compound would start to grow over time. Now, in the course of time, that father would die. And when he died, the sons inherited the family estate. And they continued to work the land, uh, the farmland, and they would preserve it for the next generation. And so over generations of time, families grew larger, they gained more wealth, and you know, they might acquire more land as a result. That's the context. And so Jesus uses the term farm to represent the family inheritance, the wealth that a son would enjoy in serving his family. So here's the question. What if the son is cut off from the family because they believed in Jesus? What if they've lost father and mother and sister and brother and as a result, the farm? They've lost their opportunity for wealth in that respect. They've lost not only the family relationships, they've lost the opportunity to be there when the inheritance was made available. Now let me give you an example of that from earlier in our study. In Matthew 8, I'll back a few chapters now, Jesus was confronted by a man who was reluctant to follow him. And this is what the man said in Matthew 8, 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. Now remember when we looked at this, some of you may remember, that we looked at that and we understood that he's not just saying, hey, my dad just died and I need to get over with the, you know, get the funeral taken care of. Because if that was what he meant, Jesus seemed pretty heartless, didn't he? You can't even go bury your father? No, that's not what he meant. What the man meant was, I'm part of a family business, as was the day, was the course of the day, and my dad's still alive. If I follow you now, I'm leaving behind my family wealth. Let me stick around till he dies, then I can inherit the wealth that's coming to me, and then I can follow you. And Jesus said, nobody, that's not how it works. You can't have this world and the next. So you have to be willing to let the dead, that is, those who are destined to die on this earth and stay dead, that is to say, not go to heaven, let the dead, those who are the walking dead, bury their own dead. Let the world have its own. You're going after something different, or you're not going at all. That was Peter's concern. Peter knew that he had walked away from the family business, the fishing business, which was effectively not only his, his way of life, but it was his inheritance. And as such, he expected there'd be something in it for him. And look, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. This isn't, you know, you have to be careful about separating what is reasonable from what is greed. Peter wasn't saying, I want to be made rich following you. I just don't want to be destitute. There's an in-between there that's okay. And he was concerned that's what he had signed up for. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not, what I'm, not, that's not the plan. I'm not just going to replace your family relationships with something better. I'm going to replace your lost inheritance with something better. Farms, as it were. If you lose your earthly inheritance, which, let's generalize this a little bit, because we live in a different culture and a different age. If by how you have to live and sacrifice for Jesus, you don't get the promotion. You don't climb the ladder. You don't get the bonus. You're not there when they hand out the big retirement packages. You walk away from things in life that you know provide for the things you want, but you do so because you can't serve God and wealth too. And as such, you need to know that's not the end of the story. The Bible says that as we come to faith in Jesus, we are qualified by that faith to share in Christ's inheritance. Paul says in Colossians 1.12, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. That is, the Father, by sheer faith alone, 
qualifies us to share in the inheritance of Christ. And, and here's what that means, literally. You know, you've heard from John 3, we're born again when we come to faith. We, we literally start life new again in faith, that is our spirit is made new. And in that moment, our family line, which used to trace its way back all the way to Adam, that family line gets cut and Jesus establishes us in a new family, the family of God, and we trace our ancestry back to Jesus. He is the second Adam. And we come in his nature now rather than the one we started with from Adam. But it's more than just our nature changing and our destiny changing, our inheritance changes. We now are a fellow heir of Christ. We share in his inheritance. What did he inherit? Well, the Bible says that he received the entire creation as his inheritance. He owns it all, and he shares it with those who are his, which means that in the kingdom to come, we receive a portion of that inheritance. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 and onward, he said, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul says two things that you need to know from that passage for today. Paul says, we have obtained our inheritance. How have you obtained it? Well, in the sense that it has been made a promise to you. It has been assured to you already. Let me explain that by way of comparison. If you have a rich family member, let's call it a rich uncle, and you know he's told you he's alive, but he's told you you're in the will. You have an inheritance. What if you were suddenly adopted by Bill Gates? Would you sit around celebrating the fact that you finally have somebody now that can fix your computer? Or would your main thought be, oh my gosh, I'm rich. Right? Because as soon as you realize that you're an heir of that, you don't know what you're going to get, you don't know when you're going to get it, but you're as good as rich at that point, you know it's coming. In the same sense, you have an, an inheritance. You have obtained it by means of faith alone, and in having obtained it, it is yours. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of when. And to make sure that you know it's true, Paul says the Lord has already given you a part of that inheritance. You've actually already received some of it in the form of a down payment, a pledge, which is the Holy Spirit deposited in you. The fact that the Holy Spirit is in you is proof to you that when he says you have a share in an inheritance, it's coming. So the Lord has promised and delivered, at least in terms of a down payment, on a heavenly inheritance. And that's why Mark records Jesus as saying, in the present age, you receive a hundredfold farms. It is to say, you have received the promise of that inheritance. It is as good as yours at this point. It's done. I mean, you can't undo it. It's only a matter of when you're going to see it. That is after death and resurrection. And that future inheritance is worth many times whatever you can give to yourself now. That is, by the way, the most convicting aspect of this truth in Scripture. As hard as we work to give ourselves what we want now, the work and the result pales in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed, which you do no work for, that is to say, it's by God's grace. How much time do we waste building a mountain of fortune and good things for ourselves here, which we leave behind when we die and have no you know, long-term value to us, when we could spend that time building up something that won't 
fade, rust, and so on. That's the folly of living for this world. If you follow Jesus and it causes you to leave behind something of this world, to put aside priorities that you would have preferred, to sacrifice something in terms of what you gain, don't worry. Don't be like Peter. You didn't do it for nothing. All right? Now, here's the thing. When I talked about it being now but yet not now, here's the thing. You don't get an inheritance until there's a death. Right? (laughs) Was that amen for me or you? Just like any inheritance, you cannot possess what is promised until a death takes place. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said this, Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. By the way, the word covenant in Greek can also be translated testament, as in Old Testament, New Testament, or we could say last will and testament. Okay, So hear it like that for a minute. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new last will and testament, So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions which were committed under the first testament, those who have been called may receive the promise of, what do you think he's going to say? What are we going to receive? The promise of the eternal, it's not life, it's, no, it's receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. It's a covenant, it's a testament. And this is what he says next. For where a covenant is, or where a last will and testament is, there must by necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. It is never enforced while the one who made it lives. He's talking about the rules for how the inheritance works. There can be no inheritance until the one who made the will, the last will and testament, dies. When Jesus died, he set in effect an inheritance and made it real for you, though you haven't received it yet. But guess how you find that inheritance? You have to die too. When you die, you receive it because you move from this world to the one where the inheritance is waiting for you. So a death of Christ established a covenant by which we became fellow heirs and became, uh, received the promise of the eternal inheritance. And by our own death, we find it. That is, we arrive where it is. So the eternal inheritance has been reserved for you. You've already received the down payment of it. In that sense, you've already received many farms as a sign of God's grace, and it is currently reserved for you in heaven. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. All right, look, if you're new here and you haven't heard this before, or if you're worried that you're about to walk into some kind of prosperity heresy, let me reassure you. What I'm not saying is that you're going to have wealth now. What I'm not saying is you can have your best life now. What I am saying is there is a prosperity teaching in the Bible. It just happens to be the opposite of what all the yahoos out there are feeding us. The truth is that as you sacrifice here and not seek for your own here and not try to make this world into heaven, then God in heaven is glad, he's, he's pleased to reward that good service. And the opportunity exists to increase your reward in heaven through that sacrifice. Now let me make sure you all understand what the Bible teaches on this. Every believer will receive a share of the inheritance, everyone. If you will, there is a minimum share. Just by virtue of faith alone in Christ, you share in the inheritance of Christ. There'll be nobody who enters into the kingdom homeless or 
destitute. That is not the Bible's teaching. So there is no downside, there is no risk that you will show up with nothing. That's not the issue. Everyone will have something waiting, something to possess, something to enjoy in that life. But the Bible also says that we can receive a proportionally greater share than others as a reward for good service and sacrifice now. And that's now what we go into in chapter 20. That's why we had to spend a few minutes to prepare for that. Let's prepare with one additional quote as we move into 20. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's the principle that should guide your service. And the parable we now study, which is at the outset of chapter 20, gives us a perspective on how the criteria works for assigning that additional reward in material terms. Matthew 20, verse one. Let me read the whole parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hours, did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, well, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with that last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, well, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day? But he answered, and he said to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. All right, let's make our observations. This is how we start with parables. We want to observe it and make sense of all the detail. And we start with, what is the comparison here? Well, Jesus says this is a parable about the kingdom. So he's explaining an aspect of the reward system, or maybe we say the, the economy of the kingdom. And that story starts with a landowner uh, who hires day laborers to work in his field. By the way, this was a very conventional way in which things were done in that day. Day labor was pretty much the job most people had if they didn't own land. And the way that worked is you got hired at the beginning of the day, and you worked at the end of the day, you got paid at the end of the day. And a denarius was the standard wage of a day's work. In fact, you would typically use that denarius to buy the food for your family's table that night. And then you did it the next day. It was literally hand to mouth, and that was very common in that time. And the workday usually started around 6 a.m. when the sun came up. So he's hired five different groups of workers here, starting with that first group. Now notice, in the first group, the landowner settles up front on a fixed amount. And he settles for the minimum wage of the day. He says, I'll give you a denarius again, which is typical. It's one bronze coin, and it was the minimum wage for a day of labor. In fact, if you were to hire someone for a full day of, of labor and give them less than a denarius, you're cheating them. And that wouldn't even have been proper. Now, you could pay more, I mean, if you were generous, but one coin was this normal amount. 
And then this guy goes out later and he's apparently looking for more help so he finds another group at the third hour, that would be 9 a.m. And uh, later he finds guys at the sixth hour, noon, later again, at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. Now notice the difference with these groups though. Not only are they coming late so they can't work a full day, that's obvious, but also notice they're not told what they're gonna earn. The first group, there's an agreement. The rest of these guys, all the landowner says is, I'm gonna give you what's right. And they trust him, and so they go to work. All right, so from there, you get to the end of the parable where they're getting paid, and of course, as you saw, he asks that he pay the final group first, which was not customary. In fact, order of things in that day had a lot of meaning. The order in which you walked, the order in which you spoke to people, uh, in this case, the order in which you paid. To be first is to be honored. And so this group that came in last gets honored by being the first and to the surprise of the rest of the group, they get paid a full denarius of work. Now look, they've worked less than 10% of a day compared to the other group, and they're getting a full day's wage. Now we don't hear what the, the groups in the middle get, and it's because they don't matter. The point of the parable is the contrast between the first and the last. So who gets called last? Remember, by, by honor terms, if you're last, you're the least valued. That's why the youngest in the family, in the case of David, was out taking care of the sheep, because if you're last in the family, you had all the worst chores. So the emphasis here is what caused this landowner to value the guys that did the least work more than the guys that, well, let's say it this way, the guys that were the least amount of time in the field versus the guys who spent the most amount of time in the field. In fact, the guys who did the most amount of time, when they show up, they assume well, look, if they did 10% of the time that we did and they got a full denarius, well, we're gonna get like, what, 10 denarii? I mean, there's something changing in the plan. We're excited about this. And then they get their one denarius and they look at the guy and they say, that's not fair. That's not what you should do. And the guy responds. The landowner says, well, wait a minute. I did what I said I was gonna do. It's exactly what was promised. And in fact, if I wanna do more for others, what's it to you? Notice he also calls them out for being envious. He, that was the issue. These guys aren't objecting because it's inherently unfair. This isn't a matter of justice. It's a matter of greed. And they have hearts that are envious, right? And he calls them out. All right, so that's the second retelling of it, I guess. Let's understand what all of that means. Look, if you're going to understand this parable, you have to start with a very fundamental question. Why did the landowner pay so much to the guys that were only there for, say, an hour? If a denarius was a wage for a full day of labor, why did he overpay? And look, it's not enough for you to simply say, oh, he was just being generous, because parables are always grounded in real life situations. If you're going to interpret a parable properly, you have to assume that the characters in the parable are acting rationally. If they're not acting rationally, then it's entirely mythology, in which case you don't know how to make any application out of it. So it is not rational for a successful businessman to pay more for labor than is required, unless there is a good reason to do so. Even a generous landowner doesn't just throw his money around. You pay what's, what's right, yes, but you only pay what you need to. That is good business. And I tell you what, there's no one who's better at good business in those days than the Jews. They knew exactly what something was worth and they paid for what it was worth, not more if they didn't have to. It's just good business. You gotta answer that question. Why did he give more to those workers? And you get your answer by thinking back to the arrangement. He didn't set the amount of their pay. He said, I'll do what is right. Now think about that from the point of view of the workers. These guys, especially the guys that have been there at the very end, they have to make a denarii, or denarius, one denarius, or they're not gonna eat. 
Their family's not gonna eat. They're sitting there at 5 p.m. What do you think they're thinking at that point in the day? Well, here's a wasted day. Then this guy comes along and he says, I'll let you work. It's only gonna be about an hour, but let's see what you can do. Now you think about that for a minute. How motivated are you as a worker at that point? What's your attitude going in? I'm just going to kind of kick some dirt around for an hour and go home. Or would you go to the job and say, man, I don't know what I'm going to get, but he said he was going to do what was right. I'm going to work my tail off for an hour. I'm going to show him how much I appreciated getting at least some chance to eat tonight. Now flip that around. What if you're working for the minimum wage? You got 12 hours in the scorching heat. They mentioned that, right? We're out here all day. We dealt with all the heat. How motivated are you when you know exactly what you're going to get for spending 12 hours in the field? It's kind of like working for the post office or the DMV, right? Your, your, pay is, your pay is guaranteed. You just got to clock the hours. How hard do you work? You get the point, right? The only rational reason why a man would pay a full day's pay to someone who worked for so little time is if they impressed him, they knocked his socks off, they went out there and worked hard enough to deserve it. And in a generous sense, I mean, he didn't have to do anything generous, but because he's generous and he's fair, he looked at the circumstance and he said, make these guys first. And flipping that around, the guys that went out there and kind of did the minimum, you know, spent the time but didn't do a lot with it, he says, okay, I made an agreement. I'll give you your denarius, but you're last. That's the point here. This is a picture of the material reward system that Christ uses in the kingdom. Everyone receives a minimum share. No one's going to get zero. And you could say it this way, in the sense of when you were saved, Jesus hired you to work in his field, to be one of his, and he guaranteed you a share of the reward as a result. And no matter how you work, no matter when you entered service, no matter whether you came as a child in faith or as a senior citizen, you have the same opportunity for that minimum share. And no matter how hard you work, look, if you get saved and blow it off and spend the rest of your life chasing the world, you're still saved and you're still gonna get a share of the inheritance. Man, that is how good Jesus is. That is how kind, that is how much grace he has. And hallelujah, because there are days in everyone's life when we kinda of live that way. Maybe even seasons of our life. And for some, maybe it is their whole life. But friends, that is what grace means, unmerited favor. But there is a minimum wage, and there is also an opportunity. An opportunity to earn more through greater service. You can work harder than others do in the body of Christ. We see that. There are people who devote more of their life to this thing we call Christianity. There are people who spend more time, make more sacrifice, give up more of this world. We see that. And we usually admire them. And often tell ourselves, I'm glad I'm not him or her. I wouldn't want to get malaria in that country. I'm glad I don't have to live in that hovel that they call a house. I'm glad that I have nice things they don't have. Yeah, we get that. There's a part of us that loves all of that. I do too. That is to say we all like nice things. But here's what we may have been missing. Those people are making a calculated decision. They are understanding something that maybe we missed. That is, that we work for a generous master who takes note of how hard we work and he is willing to reward that labor. And Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last first. Now, in the parable, he means that the first group to be rewarded was the last group to be hired because of what they did, right? And the last group to be rewarded was the first group to be hired and had the most time in the field, but they didn't make the most of it. So you have this final group hired that had a very small window in which to serve, but because they served so well, they received proportionally the most. 
If you think about it by hour, what was their rate for the hour of work? They worked for one denarius an hour. The other guys worked for one-twelfth of a denarius for the hour. They were proportionally better rewarded. The landowner did something, though, very interesting in that calculation, and this is an element you need to understand if you're going to serve him properly and make the most of your time. The landowner took into account limited opportunity. I don't for a minute imagine that these men who came in at the 11th hour, no matter how hard they worked, I don't think for a minute they did as much labor as the men who were in the field all day. I don't think it's possible that they could have done as much. Even with that group that came in first, lollygagging all day long, they probably did more because of the time opportunity. But that obviously did not matter to this man because the landowner was smart enough to figure that out. So he looked at their situation and he said, you had a limited opportunity and based on what you did with it, you were first in my heart. You made the biggest impression and as a result, you are first in reward. That tells us that the Lord takes into account opportunities in evaluating our service. And therefore, this is the rule. Those who make the most of their opportunity will be rewarded proportionally more than others. It's a system that is both generous and fair, and it's intended to motivate us to good service. Now, if somewhere in the middle of all of this, you're starting to think, gosh, it just feels a little greedy, like we're all about the money or the reward all of a sudden. Well, before you run to that thought, let me ask you this. If you're a parent and you have children, Do you ever reward your children with some kind of material reward when they do what you've asked them to do? Whether that's an ice cream or whether that's a a, a little allowance or getting a good grade, maybe you take them out to dinner. I mean, do you ever do those things? Do you feel sullied when you do that? Do you feel like that's beneath you and it's encouraging greed? Or do you just recognize it as what it is, encouraging obedience? Well, you know how to do that for your kids. And your father in heaven, who is perfect, can't do the same? You see the point, right? It's not to encourage us to think about him only in material terms. It's simply to motivate us to make sacrifices that otherwise we might not be willing to make. Let me give you an example. I think it's an example we can all relate to. Would you not agree with me that Billy Graham worked hard for many years in serving Jesus, right? He had lots of opportunity to make that major impact. He lived for decades. That gave him lots of time. He was a talented speaker. He had powerful friendships with world leaders. He would speak to people in stadiums. So clearly, look, if you, if you can speak to 50,000 people in Yankee Stadium and no one gets saved, you're in the wrong line of work. So he clearly had opportunity, right? And so you might assume that his reward will be considerably greater than the minimum. Fair enough. But wouldn't you at the same time expect that a man who was given so much opportunity should have made such a big impact? Wouldn't that have been the expectation to come with it? But now let's look at the other end of the spectrum for a minute. What about the thief who hung on the cross next to Jesus? Let me remind you of what transpired in that moment. In Luke 23, we read this, 2339. One of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other answered, rebuking the first, and said, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. All right, we remember that story, right? But the first thief is always the guy I don't understand. He's insulting Jesus, even as he's dying for the same thing, right? He's on the cross with him, making fun of the guy dying next to him. That's a hard heart. 
But then you have that second thief, and he is a believer. We know this because he acknowledges Jesus as Messiah by saying, remember me in your kingdom. So he's acknowledging the Messiahship of Jesus. He's a believer. Here's the part you may not have known. Did you know that that believing thief was not a believer when they first nailed him to the cross? Mark tells us in his gospel, or Matthew actually in his gospel tells us, that at the beginning of the crucifixion, both of the thieves were hurling abuse against Jesus. Now think about that. What transpired in the few hours on the cross? Well, look, if there's ever a moment that you might be impressed upon to know that Jesus is Messiah, it would have been to see the things happening as they happened to him on that cross. So at some point in a span of a few hours, that man had a change in heart as a result of God's work in his his heart, and out of that he became a believer. Literally in the 11th hour, he joined the work in the field. 11 hours and 59 minutes in his case, right? A believer at the very end. All right, now, with barely any time at all before he himself died, to serve Jesus, we might assume this guy probably got the minimum share, right? I mean, how much more could he get? Ah, but wait a minute for a second here. The parable says that our reward is based on the opportunity that we're given. So we need to ask, what kind of opportunity did that man get? Well, far less than someone like Billy Graham, for sure. What did he do with his opportunity? Because that's the criteria. What did he do? Well, in what I just read, he worshiped and glorified Jesus as Lord, and he witnessed to the only other unbeliever within reach, the man on the other cross. I mean, he's not going anywhere. He's not going on a mission trip. He's nailed to a piece of wood. He's not gonna start serving in the church coffee ministry, right? This guy has got a few hours. Maybe that's what we should do to encourage more people to serve in the coffee ministry. But he's got a few hours before he himself is in paradise, what do you expect that guy to do? Look, this guy did all you could do under those circumstances, and I submit to you that he will have a reward commensurate with someone like Billy Graham, based on opportunity. And may I add, unlike Billy Graham, this thief's story is recorded in the pages of Scripture. So clearly the Lord views his ministry as valuable and important. So look, though I don't know what these men are getting, none of us do, that's not the point. The point is this, Run the race set before you. And in the running of the race set before you, you have opportunity. You will not you know, see the zero reward, but you should be concerned with whether you can improve on the minimum because it comes as a function of pleasing Christ. And pleasing Christ is your goal, Paul says. Let me end with just a footnote from another parable. In Luke 16, Jesus explains the value of being willing to sacrifice now to please Christ for the sake of that reward. What is the value in that? And Jesus sums up the point of this other parable in Luke 16. He, he sums it up this way. He says in 16:9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, well, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, well, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for you'll either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here's what he's saying. First of all, let me clarify. When he says unrighteous wealth, the wealth of unrighteousness, he's not saying that's money that's been earned in some dishonest way. That is just a general term for the wealth of this world. 
The wealth of this world is the unrighteous wealth because it's of an unrighteous kingdom. And the, world, the wealth of the next world is the true riches. So it's a contrast between, look, the money you have in your bank account right now is unrighteous wealth by definition because you can't take it with you because it will never see the light of day in the kingdom. It will burn up with the world. So what you have now, Jesus says, is a very little thing. Why is it little? Even if you have a billion dollars, why is it little? Because it doesn't last long. It doesn't last into eternity. And he says, you're being watched in a sense, you're being tested by how you use what God gives you. Now I wanna generalize this one step further because if it's only about money in your mind, some of you are thinking, well I don't have any money anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, think of it in other terms because the Bible is talking here in general about resources. So the general way we talk about resources is time, talent, and treasure. And I'll tell you what the enemy works on people more now with than money, used to be money, now it's time. What the enemy has taken from you more than your money is your time. And you always have something you have to do. You always have more of it that needs done and you never have enough time for Jesus. He fits in when he can. And I don't just mean church, I mean anything, right? We're always busy today. And every little gadget that comes along is Satan's effort to just take more of our time. My point is this, you have to be faithful in what you have. The resources you have are fleeting, be faithful to them. And yet in, in summation of all of that, that's a very little thing compared to eternity. And he says, if you can't be faithful in a little thing, I I don't think you're gonna be faithful in much. And if you've not been faithful in the use of wealth that you know you're not gonna keep, I mean, think about this for a minute from the view of eternity. You know you're leaving your money behind. What good is it to build a mountain of wealth in this world to leave behind your ungrateful kids? I mean, does that really matter to you? Do you really care about that? People talk about that all the time. Well, I wanna leave something in my family. Really, does that really matter? Do you think they're gonna talk well about you after you're gone because you left them a lot of money? Or are they gonna fight over it? Look, you can do what you want with your family and I'm not saying you have to be poor and that makes you better for Jesus. What I'm saying is this. Think about how you use it from an eternal point of view. And if you use it, he says, and I love this line, he says, make friends with it so that they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. What he means is this. Use it for the purpose of building the kingdom, whether that's evangelistically or in discipleship of believers. Use it for the kingdom and they will remember that. That is a powerful proof that there is memory that moves, from us, moves us from this world to the next. People in the next world will remember how you funded their mission work or how you supported the church or how you were kind to them when their house burned down or whatever it is you do with your money to help the believer in the, in, or reaching people with the gospel. And he says, when you reach your eternal dwelling, they'll welcome you into it which is a, say, a way of saying that when you walk into the kingdom, that you will be welcomed into a place of dwelling that includes the rewards that come for what you did. And he says, if you've not been faithful in that, which is someone else's, who will give the true riches to you? If you wanna say there's a prosperity teaching in the Bible, that's it. The prosperity teaching of the Bible is we all share in Christ's inheritance, But if we're faithful to serve him sacrificially, we have opportunity for even greater reward because he is fair and he is generous. And if you know you serve a kind and generous master, then you should make it as your ambition to please him with the time, the talent, and the treasure that you have. And in doing so, you're not gonna be like Peter wondering what's in it for you. You know what's in it for you. All right, you're gonna be here a few decades and then it's over and then eternity starts. Which one is the better place to invest in? Yeah, let's think about that. And we'll pray. Heavenly Father, Father, in hearing what we hear, we understand it, but we also, Father, need help to do it because moving away from this world takes courage. 
Sacrifice is not easy, and I pray, Father, that for some who have heard this for the first time, for them, Father, I pray they'd be given opportunity to, to think about it, consider it, pray about it, and that in that time with them, Father, you would encourage their hearts to think more about obedience to it. And Father, for the rest who have heard it before but needed a reminder, I pray, Father, you would show us your pleasure in the things we do so that we will have increased motivation to do it. Help us, Father, to see things with eyes for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.